Hey guys, due to entirely foreseen, totally avoidable circumstances, Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is going to go on a two-week hiatus. We know this is a disappointment and that nothing can make up for it, that we alone send a shining beam of meaning into otherwise meaningless lives lived by rote. As an apology, we'll instead put out two episodes of an experimental thing we're doing called Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata colon Podcast Guys Talking to Erratic Errata. So get hype! <laughs> Podcast Guys takes a long view and a long price. Spoilers will be commonplace. Listen at your own risk. Good morning, faithful reader. Welcome, fortunate seeker. This is Podcast Guys Talking Erotic Errata. Podcast Guys Talking Erotic Errata is a whirlwind reread of a practical guide to evil where... A historian... And a literature scholar... Tackle the big questions about one of the greatest novels of the age, such as... What is the best way to kill a mage? What that old tongue do. And Warlock's just joking about the god thing. Right? Right? There's a very important difference between a nice man and a good one. King Jahan the Wise. Really? I thought that was Little Red Riding Hood in Stephen Sondheim's Into the Woods. My musical theater heads know what I'm talking about. So this chapter is a chapter. We have an interrogation of a prisoner. The woman from the Duchy of Deina, who has been traveling with the Lone Swordsman and is no longer traveling with him because he apparently went off alone and abandoned his party, also the bards there. After that, we have a friendly little chat between Catherine and the Warlock. We learn that her party is going to grow, and we learn that her soul is in peril. Yeah, but... I think that's about all the major points. Whose soul isn't imperiled at this point? I mean, Warlock's around. Not to give any spoilers, which would conflict directly with our mission statement. But Warlock's mm. actually not the source of the weirdest soul thing going on in this chapter. Oh. The Watch drives their power from like a big amalgamated tumor of souls. Huh. huh. You learn something new every day, I guess. Wait, wait, the words you just said. Uh, are you caught me? So Catherine starts this chapter by telling us that the only thing you need to change a nice stockroom into something sinister was, quote, clearing out the supplies setting up a stone slab in the center of it and shackling a prisoner to it. You learn something new every day. And that sounds like just a very dry coping style joke, but this is Catherine Foundling we're talking about, and she is taking earnest notes, I am sure. Because, oh, she's the worst. Well, she says she's... This is lending the whole affair a particularly villainous vibe that she's not really on board with. So taking notes and being concerned all at once? Yeah, she'll get on board. Oh, yeah. Speaking of being bored, 
Wakesa explains that Masego's not coming because he has no interest in matters like these. And he tells us, neither do I, frankly, but rank tends to accrue tedious duties. And for this entire conversation, he's going to be effective, abominable, and bored out of his skull. I'm sorry, did we just fall back on our segues being built on homonyms now? I don't see why his love life should come up. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah, the warlock has been party to, specifically an active party to, a great number of abominable acts. Uh, kind of inter- or interrogating and kind of torturing a prisoner is uh, pretty low on that list. This is tedious for him. It, it's He is definitely the warlock, the premier mage in a country, a nation, a state made up of an extremely evil government. Evil. But as that king told us at the beginning, there's a difference between good and nice. Because you know what? Warlock is a monster in some ways beyond anything Catherine's ever met. And I only mean in some ways because she has met Militia, she's met Aquia, she's met Black, she's met Scribe. She's met herself. She's secretly encountered Assassin. Pardon? She's met herself. She's met herself. She's met, very frankly, those two monstrous men in the first chapter. Mm-hmm. And I'm really looking for a funny one to add onto the list. I mean, she met William. Yeah, but that's true. The Bard? She met William. She met the Bard. Oh, she's so funny. No, but that's true, too. Uh, she oh, met... Uh, she met Thief, the greatest monster of all. Somebody who takes money from rich people. They worked hard for that. They did. But on the other hand, a sexy fox who doesn't even wear pants taught me as a child that uh, that's a good thing. Also, I rewatched that film recently, and I gotta say... Yep. <laughs> I can tell what's on your mind that 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 movie is on your mind. That's great that that's where we go with this. You just gotta say, first of all, he holds up. But secondly, definitely made some choices in that film. Nothing that I'm feeling terribly censorious about, but, you know, it's a product of its time. That all said, Uh (laughs) nice is different than good, and Warlock had admittedly been nothing but polite to me so far. Because you know what? He is the beautiful, friendly, amicable face of evil. Yeah, he absolutely is. Uh, But Kat says that she should have expected a departure from the mold uh, in that rather than being creepy expectant for the torture, he's sort of just bored with the uh, coming torture interrogation. Just like rather than being blatantly evil and cackling, he was polite. Cat, he's a calamity in many ways, though not all. They break the mold because they figured out how to be effective rather than uh, just ride the rut for the sake of it. They, they, they're the calamities. They're led by black. They are singular. They are unique in what they do. They're going to break a lot of molds. They're also going to break a lot of people. Oh yeah. The prisoner they've got has had healing. But the healing was sloppy enough that if she tried to move too much, it would hurt. Not a coincidence, Catherine assumes. And this is a marriage of practicality and, coincidental, I'm sure, decency. It's nice that they healed her. Don't get me wrong. But it's also preventing death. It may work as something of a tool of interrogation in that, hey, look, we're not torturing you until we need to, which isn't effective and they 
don't bother with because they don't need to. But also, if she tries to move too much, it'll hurt. Hey, look, now we've changed it from being in a terrible position to behavioral control. That's nice. It It's worth drawing the through line here. You, you said that the fact that this, this is decent is incidental. Uh, the torture she undergoes later is also incidental. Hey, I'm going to get this information out of you. Uh, it won't hurt if you just let me do it. So sure, she's experiencing torture, not the you know political get information through torture. It's torturous, uh, but it's again incidental. They're not going out of their way to well, he this is Warlock doing this. Warlock's not going out of his way to be particularly cruel or particularly nice. He's being practical and efficient, and I mean, this is a tedious chore he has to do. So he's just doing what he needs to to be done with it. So this unnamed so far person, from our current perspective, wakes up and there's a single spark of terror before she smothers it, schooling her face into a blank mask. We see that a lot in this book, in this series, mm-hmm. in this world. Lots of people are very good at concealing their expressions. Next chapter, the best character in the series is going to control her expression. Everyone in praise controls their expression. There's just a lot of it. It's a PGTE trope. And it's also... Uh important like it's it's noted within the story that that's true because cat at various places and other people who are more politically minded than cat also at various places note that a schooling of an expression especially into a blank expression is a sign of something going on like the people who are particularly skilled don't do this they keep their face as it was they are able to to master their expression such that they aren't going blank when something happens that they don't like. And so, yes, everybody can go blank, which is a skill in and of itself. But then there's a layer above that that we can note um, through the eyes of the people who are particularly skilled at this game. So, yeah, yeah, it's definitely noted within the story as well. The first words she says upon being awoken are, I am an imperial citizen being held unlawfully to the warlock and the squire. Yeah. First of all, they're above the law. Second of all, they are the law. And third, I'm not a pricey legal scholar, but I'm near certain that unlawfully detaining imperial citizens is declared lawful. It just feels like that kind of place, right? Kind of, yeah. Also, I don't know, uh, are the Jorah actually imperial citizens? I, I understand that there's... They're a client state. Right, and... I, it's interesting that that extends to the individuals within the state being citizens of the empire. I, that's, I guess I didn't put it together that they would have been considered imperial citizens and that they that it's to the level that she expects to have legal protections in that, I don't know, identity and in that standing, that legal standing. It There's an interesting relationship here between the uh, Halloween orcs and priests. To be fair, we also don't have evidence other than she says it that it's true. Yeah, but the thing that Kat chooses to latch on is her actions rather than her claims of of what her, like rather than her defenses. Her actions supersede her defense rather than her defense being nonsense. And her actions were participating in the activities of a group that's been convicted of high treason and seen attempting the murder of a member of the Dark Council. In book two, chapter two. We actually see the first mention of this council when Ime and Militia alone form a quorum, which is so convenient. Uh-huh. But there it's called the Imperial Council, 
which I don't mean to say is incorrect. In the United States of America, we can say the House and Senate or Congress and refer to the same bodies or the government and often refer really just to that. However, cool. It's the Dark Council because Price is like that. And that very well could be that in Price, it's called the Imperial Council and in Callow, they refer to it as the Dark Council because it's the evil empire. Who knows? And Catherine just doesn't correct herself. Right. (laughs) She just, in her mind, it's still the Dark Council. I am Catherine Foundling, squire of, well, just squire, I guess. I am Catherine Foundling, squire, general of the 15th Legion, and the fist and gestures of the imposter empress militia in praise. And I, sorry, I meant the dread empress, that one. I'm sorry. Did you just say fist and gestures? (laughs) Uh, I think we referenced that work last chapter, and we're just going to keep doing it every chance we get now. I'm currently reading Harrow to a Friend. Mm-hmm. It's very good. Well, wow, no argument here. Both of those actions that the prisoner has undertaken fetch the death penalty, and not one of those nice quick ones. Now, we all know I live in one of those backward states that employs the death penalty willy-nilly, which is to say at all. Right. <laughs> but ostensibly, the death penalties that are unjustly inflicted by my state are formulated to create a minimum of suffering, Mm -hmm. ostensibly. Right. And there are various ways to die. You can die in all sorts of ways. True. Catherine was talking about crucifixion last chapter, which is a bad way to die, we decided, right? Right. It's not one of the good ways to die. Do you happen to know how the multiplicity of options for execution were navigated by historical states that used execution as a means of population control. A quick hanging as opposed to crucifixion, as opposed to starve them in a cell, as opposed to, I don't know, lasers? Archimedes would point a mirror at you? Right, and that, that was a method of state-sponsored execution. Uh, I think it mostly, my understanding is that it mostly just boils down to severity of crime that you want, from the state's perspective, you want the really bad crimes to do suffering to dissuade people from doing them more, even though that's not exactly how that works. Um, so, you know, things like treason get the really bad things, like, you know, drawn and quartered or crucifixion or whatever, whereas other things might get the uh, hopefully, in theory, quick death of a hanging or a beheading, um, although hanging can have its own issues. Um, and then there's also just sometimes the, beheading takes multiple blows. Sorry, Mary. <laughs> Whoops. Uh, there's also just the idea that there's like a a more ethical way to kill someone, which is you know as painless as possible. So states that are trying to have some kind of moral high ground, or if it's an honorable person, like right? If there's some sort of like honor element of like, ah, oh, you are a worthy whatever. We're gonna behead. There, there are things like that. Past that, I don't know specifics, but there's definitely a lot to look into about how you kill people. Uh, you know, there's, especially since you want a, as a state, there are times where you want to like stain someone's legacy by making them die of neglect, you know, stick them in a cell and let them starve to death. There's making them forgotten as part of death. There's, there's a lot going on there. Uh, Typically, it boils down to 
if you do a treason, you get a bad death, because how dare you stand up against the state itself? Well, if you don't have a state, everything will be anarchy, which is bad. Right, it's a synonym for bad. It's like The Purge. Yep, it's exactly like the movies. I've never seen them. Speaking of purging, all this woman tried to do was purge the warlock from praise. Yeah, there's a lot here. Attempting to murder one of the Dark Council, treason, yada, yada, yada. Um, Even aside from that, she attacked one of the calamities. That's a death sentence in many ways. There's the legal side of it. If you attack the calamities, I'm sure death is just sort of the acceptable outcome legally. There's the power gulf. If you attack one of the calamities and they decide to kill you, you cannot stop them. There's the practicality standpoint of if you attack one of the calamities they can just choose to kill you and there's nobody aside from even outside of you that can stop them like what's militia gonna do say warlock stop killing people who shoot you i i don't think so uh everything else aside you 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 launch a lethal weapon at a calamity your life is you've taken your life nope that's not true i was gonna say you've taken your life into your own hands you've given your life into their hands and in this case, that was a good choice, I guess, because Warlock doesn't kill people with his own hands, but y- you know what I mean. I know what you mean, but Catherine doesn't know what the prisoner means. Nice. She says something to Catherine in the old tongue, and Catherine's response, being very Catherine, is, I don't actually speak that, except for a few curses. And Warlock says, probably best you don't, and then turns to the prisoner, you should be ashamed of yourself, young lady. I'm sure her mother was a perfectly nice woman. Which means the Warlock speaks the old tongue. Which is the Jorah tongue, which is the Kalo Orc, mm-hmm. which the Kalorks, if you will. Sure. And obviously, outside of any mimetic threats, which I don't particularly know to exist in this world, there is no downside to knowing a language. But I'm just curious how and why the warlock chose to acquire the old tongue of all things. Keeping in mind that later in the series, we do, spoiler warning, obviously, we see Catherine rip out knowledge of Chantant from a drow, or she has a queer do it and borrows it. There's a process. She steals a language. So I'm sure Warlock's not above doing that if he can, but that's, I'm not sure that's within the realm of possibility if you're not working with Knight. So I'm I'm just curious. Why? I think the why is probably, there's probably a very simple answer that it might just be this. There could be more to it, but uh, we find out that he spent at least a fair bit of time studying the watch and trying to figure out where their power comes from. Knowing the language they speak probably helps with that to some extent. So it very well could be, I found some texts on the watch from a while ago. I need to read these myself. So he learned the language. My French is very poor, but my understanding of how it works is sufficient that I, with a dictionary and perhaps a grammar, can navigate my way through pretty much any text, which it didn't take a lot of work to acquire, really. A bit of time. I mean, it, you know, languages are huge, but no, you can pretty casually pick up something if you just put a little work into it. Mm-hmm. Okay. I, I choose to believe this as most viable. And that's what this podcast is about. Figuring out the most viable theory and then just assuming it's objectively true. Speaking of things that are objectively true, Catherine doesn't mind that her mother was insulted because what mother? Right. And she notes, if anything, the closest thing I'd ever had to a father figure was black. And wasn't that a terrifying thought? 
and that's just cute because you they're they're becoming family they're a very healthy normal family yes every daughter dreams of the day Gosh. she gets to reunite <laughs> with her father with a prisoner of war mm-hmm. to hand over to him it's and then she stabs him to death right spoilers are commonplace Speaking of spoilers, you know how Catherine becomes the arch-heretic of the East? I do know that. Well, here, the prisoner spits something else in her direction. She says, arch-traitor. And, I don't know, Catherine probably has top two claim to that for Callowin. She's the squire, which could well put her out on top. The other big one would be Holt, I would think. Those are the two candidates for the arch-traitor. They're the two praesist of the praesid Callowins. Yeah, I think I agree with that. Uh, but Catherine always upgrades her titles, so get ready for some heresy later. Oh yeah. Uh, after calling her an arch traitor, the prisoner then refers to Cat as using a term I'm unfamiliar with and don't really begin to know how to pronounce. Uh, Urind, maybe it's U R A I N D. Um. We don't really get an explanation or any sort of response to the term, but, you know, it's always nice when you get a some kind of insult, pejorative, slur, maybe, coming out of somebody in a language you don't speak. We see that a few times before in from uh, various people, usually talking to Cat, but here uh, we don't get any explanation for it. What is it? What what means filth in Mthethwa? I'm losing my dictionary. Uchafe. Uchafe? Yeah. Well, Irish which is a language I'll be getting into a little later, does have a word whose genitive singular is U-R-A accent, I-N. There's no IPA on this, but the word which, from my languages, would look something along the lines of Udan. It's an alternative form of what, from my languages, would look like Foran, meaning attack, assault, violence, or aggression. So if we made it one who... It could be aggressor, one who does violence, the enemy. Okay. Anyone know or has ideas how this could derive from Irish or anything else, but Irish is the obvious choice. Mm-hmm. Let me know. This is so cool to me. Oh, yeah. I have no skill in Irish at all. But if I start dissecting souls, I might pick it up. So Catherine wants her name. She refuses to give it. And Catherine says it'll make the conversation easier if she can refer to her as something other than prisoner or you. Will it, though? I don't use the name of my interlocutor, typically. I get people's attention with their names. But the only use of someone's name in conversation is admonishment or maybe jubilation. Well... There's three people in the conversation, and the more people you have in a conversation, the more likely it is you're going to use somebody's name so it's clear who you're speaking to, and so you can speak about the third person when you're talking to the second. But I agree, and in fact, uh, the woman says her name shortly, and that is the only time... Well, sure. She gives a, a, a way to refer to her, and that's the only time that word is used by a character for the rest of the chapter. Uh... It's neither Warlock nor Cat use the term. Cat uh, uses it, or we get it as in the narrative. You know, it's that she said we we you know we get the name there. But yeah, so Cat really wants it, I think, just so that she can think about this person with a name rather than so she can say it. I guess she's such a caring narrator. Remember when Catherine was infiltrating the resistance group so that she could undermine it and murder William? Of course. Well, he 
was able to identify her as the enemy immediately when he saw she was an orc and also she lied to him. Mm-hmm. And truth magic, we learned, was a an uncertain and rare thing. Here's another piece of that getting information from people thing. Getting information from people schema. Warlock says about the name to the prisoner, I could rip it out of your mind, of course, but that tends to make a mess. Okay, one way to pull the truth out of someone is to just rip it out. And if Warlock makes a mess doing it, I have a feeling that it's beyond the skill of nearly everybody else, and that those who can do it probably tend to kill the person, so it's not used often, I would wager, or not commonly known that it's possible. If Warlock said, oh yeah, I could rip it out of your mind, it might hurt a little bit, Yeah, you know, if it were a pretty casual thing for him, that's one thing, but the fact that it's messy for him to do clues us in that uh, it's probably not something that's feasible for nearly any other mage. Which is awesome. We're at the limits, currently. Mm-hmm. Of course, I don't think Warlock's objective is going to be to do it cleanly. Speaking of objectives... Yeah, Kat, Kat makes a claim that uh, it... She she is talking about how it's whether or not it's fair to hurt somebody or uh, exactly how violent you can be to a prisoner because uh, she she initially she eventually comes down to it's a child's way of seeing things that it's um, gross that some you're to be relying on fear to somebody that's already a prisoner but then she she says yeah it's a child's way of seeing things if you're so insecure about your objectives that you feel the need to give your enemy a fair shot at you, then maybe you shouldn't be fighting at all. And I guess that's a point you could make and a stance you could take, but I think it depends on your objectives. For Kat, I think this is true. And for Kat's worldview, I think it's true. Because Kat, this is a practical guide to evil. Kat's decision-making process doesn't fall back on things like... I don't know, principles, morals, as often as, as as they fall back on what is the best way to achieve my end goal of freedom for Kalo or protecting the people I care about or things like that. But for somebody who is uh, a good person rather than a nice one, it very well could be that your goals include doing things the right way, that they include ethically standing against violence or against oppression, and that having a fair shot at something is built into your goal to prove that in a fair contest you come out ahead i i I don't even feel like like i don't even feel like this is a particularly niche example of where this may not be the truest thing in the world but there i think i think this says more about cat than it does about how the world works in this case i think it's cat looking at the world through her perspective and coming to this conclusion and it's you know it's nice it's another place where it's just very obvious that this story is told through the perspective of Catherine Foundling. And that's just the case. And it's great. Like She's a f- great narrator for what the information we're getting. But it's very much she is the narrator. That's very fair. And so she has to be. Yeah. So in the previous heroic interlude, William suspected that the member of the watch was lying about her name. The name was given. I refuse to read it aloud because I have such minimal understanding of Irish orthography. Fair. But since it came up again, I actually did my duty and looked it up because I am a professional. And this name, 
Depending on where in Ireland it's pronounced, apparently there are three major dialects, at least on the website I went to. It is somewhat in the neighborhood of, please ask your local Irish speaker rather than me if you want accuracy, Pregach. Uh, at the end, the phlegmy throat noise. And I say that with all the love in my heart. I think that's one of the best noises in human phonetic libraries. Can get very soft. The R gets very trilled in ways that I am not adept at. The EA can kind of slur together, can come apart into something of an EA. But regardless, Pregach means liar, plain and simple, which is fantastic. It's not a surprise to readers of this chapter because Warlock's direct response is cute. Lying, is it? I didn't think the watch was that self-indulgent. However, if you don't know that pregach means liar, or I guess in Jorah, lying, maybe? Warlock's answer couldn't, Warlock's response could instead come across as, cute, you're choosing to lie to me. If, you know, I were captured and someone asked my name and I said, Her Highness Queen Isabella of Aragon. Aragon? She's of Aragon, right? Sounds right. Or Castile? Ferdinand of Castile. Regardless, if it's inaccurate, all the better. People would simply say, oh, you're lying, okay. Because I'm clearly not an Isabella. I don't have the hair for it. Yeah, I'm going to be honest. I assumed on reading that my, my first instinct was that he was saying she is lying to him, which I think maybe is also what's going on here. But that that is the literal definition of the name she assumes or actually uses? I, I guess it's not clear. There's a chance that, you know, when you enter the watch, you take a name, the pseudonym, hard to say. Um, that, that, that That's what's going on? I mean, it, we've we've seen that a couple times in this book already. With uh, We've got uh, Bregach and uh, Ime doing it as well previously. So it it's just a, I, I guess that's just what people who are in positions of, intelligence or risking intelligence then you just take a cute name that means a, that means something and that reveals a little bit of information to your uh your captor conversation partner or whoever given the nature of the world mm -hmm. i think that would be subtly metaphysically encouraged as well just because it's kind of like a major spy move to do something like that and therefore your spy story will go better that's fair it is a nice like it, it's a nice trope. I don't dislike it at all. Um, and yeah, tropes have actual power. So fair. But speaking you know of who actual else has power, actual power, yeah, there it is. <laughs> uh, yeah, the warlock. Um, so to try to figure out a little bit more about her and uh, to figure out if she is part of the watch, which he assumes she is, um, the warlock prepares a spell uh, that creates this cage of red lights connected by threads of gold uh interestingly here in doing so the warlock we don't get any description of effort from the warlock um previously when magic is used we almost always get if it's for the first time the hand motions the mage tongue the visible effort the sweating whatever something is going on and warlock smiles and says well let's find out if that's the first lie of the day and then Red light appears and surrounds her, and she's caged in and panicking, and there's just magic because he wanted there to be. I I don't know if this is a glossing over the casting 
a if it's a prepared spell that he had ready and could activate with a thought, or if it's just yeah, the warlock's that good where he just casually <laughs> wimmers up uh, something that can imprison and test members of the watch with next to no effort. And all of those seem equally likely Agreed. or plausible at the very least. Right. But you know, it's glossed over, and we can't delve too deeply into it because we don't have the information. However, there is other content here that's not glossed over, much to Catherine's dismay. Though Warlock is fascinated in the chance to work with Pregach because she's pretty plainly a member of the Watch, and they're worth investigating. They're not physically different than regular Jorah, so they're just normal orcs, but... They're capable of a whole lot. And so, Warlock's been dissecting, vivisecting, uh, doing all of the sectings to the members of the Watch he can get. Not bisecting, to our knowledge, which we only do to Hunter, but all the other ones. And Catherine is not so much a fan. Yeah, uh, in fact, she's so much not a fan that we get, for the first time in a while frankly, uh, a finger's clenching, which knocks us up to number 12. Surprise! It's time for a Deicide and Applied Blasphemy. Deicide and Applied Blasphemy is our segment where we discuss comments and questions from you, our dear listeners. We have falsely assumed the thrones of your gods, and we invite you in this segment to challenge us for the mantles. You will not succeed, and we will continue on unceasing and unerring. Today's comment comes from Monty, who wrote in previously and was banished to the most mundane of all hells, reality. Monty writes to us to discuss the ages of the calamities, a subject we have referenced, we've enjoyed, and we have not once sought textual support for. Monty identified three different points that suggest Amadeus's age. In Villainous Interlude Decorum, E.E. writes, Only Aliyah stood in the same league, a mastermind who'd been able to fill the function of two named for over 40 years. E.E. goes on to tell us, Amadeus had spent over 50 years carefully making sure not to burn too many bridges. And finally, We've been at this over 40 years, Saba, the Black Knight said. We've killed so many people I can't remember all the faces. It has been in short, long. Which we see this compared to how heroes live basically a normal time span, like a normal lifespan. Black has been active for a very long time and shows signs of aging only in his bearing and not in his body. You know, Monty brings up the fact that Black is called an old monster. He is an old monster. For most people, their entire adult lives or their entire lives have been spent with him at the helm of the Dread Empire of Praise. That's a long time. I think it's also worth noting that while 70 years is a reasonably old age, no doubt, he's not the ancient and eternal monster. He's in the early stages of geriatricity. True, but he has been actively changing the world around him in and outside of his home for a very long time, which I think sets him apart from most villains there who, if they get too uppity, are killed by a band of five or who stay hidden and powerful. 
uh, he kind of rides the line between the two very successfully up until, you know, now. Well, they tend to be killed by a band of five only if they can be. Monty brought another point up from Heroic Interlude Appellant, where the Hedge Wizard and the Champion are bickering and it makes them untouchable. Seeing as we just witnessed the Bumbling Conjurer on screen and then dying, I think this would be the perfect time to put this off until we discuss that chapter. Yeah, uh, Monty, this is a great topic to discuss, and we are very much looking forward to digging into comic relief characters and what that means in the narrative. Not because we are trying to avoid your question, to be clear, but because it will be a discussion that we want to be able to spend some real time on, and the Deicide and Applied Blasphemy section, uh, we try to keep it brief, as you can tell, obviously. That said, we do have time to discuss other topics within this segment going forward. If you have anything that you would like to uh, see discussed on the show or to point out places where you erroneously think we have made mistakes, please do so. We can be reached at uh, a couple of different locations. The easiest being thelongprice at gmail.com. As for the others, listen to the credits once. It'll do you some good. Maybe there's something cool afterwards. Who knows? You've never checked. But for now, and for, as far as I can tell, all eternity, we stand unvanquished. Uh, but yeah, uh, he's, been, he's been poking around with the watch, trying to figure out how they work. And we get a bit of information about their function in this chapter. Not a whole lot. Um, but in explaining the watch, he kind of takes a very brief tangent into elves and we get one of the only bits of actual explanation for what and how the elves are in this entire story. We get little bits of information about elves here and there, mostly through witnessing what they can do. A lot of show don't tell. And here's one, one little piece where he says, uh, we, first of all, we get the, that the elves are isolationists, which we see numerous times. So that's not new. Um, we know that the, uh, the Jorah hate the elves with a passion, uh, and we find out a bit more next chapter about why that is. Uh, but more importantly to me, we get one sentence where Warlock says, their entire species, elves, adds more weight to their presence in the pattern the longer they live. It's It reads to me almost like a species-wide name, or rather a species-wide role, a a, an imprint on creation created by the entirety of elfhood. Uh, I mean, their entire species is adding weight just by being alive, and that's part of what makes them what they are. I, I don't know. There's, this is just an interesting thing. They, this is never said about humans or dwarves or orcs or goblins or drought. Nobody else has this thing where there's a species-wide imprint being created. Everybody else has individual things or cultural things elves are just really old and so and powerful and part of that is that they have a a story attached to their species and while it must be acknowledged that given the uniqueness of elvinity this pattern could just be an explanation for why elves are elvy and it's its own thing because elves are strong theories yeah i it it is why they are elfy, but the fact that they are adding more weight the longer they live leads me to believe that they are becoming more elfy over time, uh, which is scary to think about. 
And just unfortunate, because let's be real, elves are the worst. I mean, yeah. I hope we never see one in the series. Hmm. What I would like to see more of are these oaths. Warlock notes that Preagach has only taken the first three oaths, and that the Watch doesn't usually send out anyone without at least five under their belt. Well, that's fun. We don't have anything to base an understanding of this on now. We don't really get all that much. In this chapter, we learn that the oaths are rituals used to tap into their mysterious source of power. And by these oaths, they gain night vision, accelerated reflexes, superior endurance, even an extended lifespan. This feels like it would fit well into a version of the world's most popular role-playing game. But their oaths, those are fun. I, I'd love to see more. It's cool. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. It's very cool. We know that there are at least six, since he says that they go out with at least five, so there have to be potentially more. We have no idea how many oaths there are, potentially, how many of these rituals one can do. Are there members of the Watch who hang out back at home who have taken all of the oaths and are absurdly powerful? You know, there's a lot we don't know just hinted at with this this sentence here. It's very cool. But what are they taking the oaths to? Warlock doesn't know. He can rule out the gods themselves. Uh, he's ruled out the choirs. He's ruled out anything demonic, which would be wild. Yeah. And his best guess... Pardon? Sorry, I was just agreeing. Yes, it would be wild if it were demonic. Uh, speaking of the wild, though, his best guess is that it's a nature spirit of some sort. He weirdly hasn't settled on an amalgamated tumor of souls. Huh, which weird. feels like the most obvious answer to me. Yeah, a rare a rare instance where the warlock is not just a little off on something, but just pretty much completely wrong, uh, which is fair. He doesn't have the information he needs, but just blatantly wrong on page. No, he's wrong in a very bounded way. He doesn't make a wrong claim. He rather says, and here's a working theory. He seems like a consummate scientist, and he'd be willing to drop it at the drop of a hat. Oh, sure. But since Catherine is a little confused because of the deities... No. But since Pregach is upset with his conjecture, he makes a boast of power, saying there's a difference between capital G gods and lowercase g gods, child. And I have more than a few of the latter's corpses in my laboratory. And that's just really cute that, yeah, he makes it his whole thing, but Masego just takes after his daddy. And that's nice, you know? My father is a teacher, and I've gone into the field of education. It's, it's good to have a family trade sometimes. Not necessary by any means, but it's nice. Warlock then gives us uh, a pretty important geopolitical detail. Uh, he tells us that the watch answers directly to Duchess Keegan, which means she knowingly broke the terms of her client-state treaty with the Tower. Um, not great, not a great situation to uh, come out here. Uh, that cannot go well for Callowan's friendly orc neighbors. But there's a follow-up to this where Cat is thinking about it, and we get Cat's view on a pretty complicated situation uh, when she says that there wouldn't be war over this, uh, this meaning the fact that a member of the Watch shot a Calamity. But rather, she says that the Empire wouldn't open a second front in the war over such a small incident. Uh, 
a second front to the war. This could, I mean, her language here could be anything from an admission to what this rebellion actually is, a misunderstanding about how the Empire is viewing it and how she should be, uh, her just intentionally cutting through the obfuscation. Like, this is the rebellion at this point, and uh, it's been pretty clear on that from a lot of the higher-ups, and Kat is just referring to as a front in a war, or the war, uh, with a second front being the duchy, you know, a second potential front being the duchy, rather. That's that's uh, that's kind of saying a lot about how she's viewing this situation, also about the both independence and power of the duchy on its own, that it would qualify like that. To be fair, it is Baby's first special military operation. Oh, no. I mean, when you're sending armies out to kill and suppress people, while I recognize that language has meaning and distinction is useful, you know, you're certainly within the greater field of wars, even if you might not call a canoe a ship, but I would possibly place it under shipbuilding. You know? It's in the family. Sure, what they're doing right now is war building, but not an actual war. They're mere warmongers, and today there's Uh, a special deal. Buy one, get two halves of your body because of bisection. Oh, that's a good deal. So, Warlock finishes up with Pregach and moves to put her to sleep. He raises a hand and says, and you, my dear, are going back to sleep. And Catherine, who I remind you is eight years old, and with one of her only legal superiors, whom she met just recently. And she says, stop. That's a presumption. It's very bold. And it's not uh, terribly, I must stop this injustice either. This isn't a morally forced, I'm going to be a hero. But she just tells him to stop. Even wait would be, uh, it would carry less of a, less of the weight of, presumptuous mandate and warlock is chill about it he gives her a stare and it makes her have to stop herself from reaching for his sword because she is catherine but that's just bold let it not be said catherine finally it's not bold which i know is a common view in the fandom <laughs> yeah it's it i mean the warlock is impatient with this until cat explains what she's doing here what she's realized and this is a this is an interesting little exchange uh, because she starts to piece things together and leads Warlock to a conclusion that she has already reached. And it kind of has reminded me about, uh, uh, reminded me of a uh, discussion on like how to write very intelligent characters. And it's done here in, in sort of the, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? In the normal fashion, I guess. Um, Kat has the information that we have, more or less, and she takes it a couple steps and realizes, okay, this is somebody, this has to be this person here that, for all we know, is just a random person in the watch. Um, she has to have something special about her. So she takes, she, she falls onto a hunch. She, she comes up with a reason, and that's that the Duchess knows this person personally, can trust this person personally, because she's family. Cat leads Warlock to this conclusion by just saying, if it'd be somebody I know I can trust, and Warlock says, and who can you trust more than your own blood? This this exchange here is incredibly, you know, for lack of a better term, Sherlockian. It's it's 
reaching a conclusion based on facts that are only partially there and if you're correct you're brilliant but if you're wrong it sounds like you just made a wild guess but because the author no you know has the answer for what's right the character can guess correctly in this instance and so be the smart character who figured it out it it's you know that's how you have to write smart characters like that's that's a very good way of doing it and it's done well here it's just an interesting thing to see it early on for Kat, you know, we see this kind of thing all the time when she cooks up these schemes that we don't really see on screen and she predicts how people are going to act very well, how armies are going to act, how her opponents are going to act. And it's that kind of thing. This is just a an early example of it where she pieces together based on, huh, this person has only said three oaths. Got it. Must be the Duchess's family member. Uh, and she nails it. She nails it, but she's discontented in the process of confirmation because warlock produces a blade from an invisible sigil because that's how he do and he is ready with it which worries catherine because she says blood magic not bothering to hide her disapproval which based on her experience is not insensible. Blood magic involves a ritual slaughter of many, which is, in her culture, considered distasteful. However, Warlock is also very not wrong when he replies, Get over yourself, girl. The same discipline is the only reason that scar across your chest didn't kill you. Besides, I just need a few drops. And that's what he does. He cuts her, he gets a few drops of blood. I'm not going to be pro-cutting people, per se, but this is in the scheme of interrogation, really a harmless part of it. You can cut me and extract a few drops of blood for all sorts of reasons before I'll be upset if you've got magic to support it. There's not much reason in the real world I would care for you to take my blood. Unless it was really funny, of course. Well, yeah, the bit trumps everything. It, yeah, it, especially in the, the scheme uh, of this specific interrogation, which opened with a couple of questions followed by a spell to dig into her soul and check things out a little bit, and then moving back to, ah, we just need some blood now. Uh, the scale there is uh, pretty drastic. And then the spell happens. It's dramatic. There's a pentagram. There's some runes. There's blood, whatever. But there is magic speech. And Catherine couldn't quite make out the words he whispered. But she recognized the cadence. It was Mthethwa, an older dialect. And that's just interesting to me. In a lot of, at least, Anglosphere representations of magic, Latin is used to indicate magic. A lot of this probably stems from ecclesiastical uses of Latin, because the Catholic Church is a powerful force in Western consciousness. The divine and the magical are not exactly different in the influences they have on culture, a focus on mysteries in many aspects of that religion and many manifestations of it, twins well with the mysteries promised by the occult, though there's official opposition, of course. So there's a reason an old language has that sway. But the idea of an older language, an older version of language, somehow being more magical or more in tune with magic is just an interesting common trope. Why is modern language insufficient? 
is this just something caused by, oh, we're operating in a post-Enlightenment world, and the Enlightenment killed magic, and therefore our modern language has been rendered sterile and barren, and only the un uncastrated, unsanitized language of the past has room for this. But then there always has been the appeal to a far-off golden age. So perhaps I overreach here. But anyway, it's cool. And I think it's fun. There could just be a practical there could just be a practical component for why it's why he's using an older dialect. The spells were written a long time ago. Why fix it if it ain't broke and if it helps to further wall off your field from the unwashed yeah, masses, if I may borrow a term? There is that side of it, too. I'm just imagining if, you know, if you've got a spell and it works, why translate it? Yeah, it, there it is. You, you just learn the older dialect and you're fine. My graduate school experience was very bilingual because we were reading a whole lot of German texts. That was my field of specialization. And we were discussing in... We frequently discussed in English. We often also discussed in German. But German studies is an English language field in the United States, even though it's discussing German. Lots of academia, even globally, has been to various benefits and various tragedies. It's been moved into an English language discourse on the whole. But despite that... The, if not mastery of, at least willingness to engage with, say, French or Latin, neither of which are languages I claim to speak, but both being languages I have many resources within, was considered just something you have to put up with, and therefore you'll make sure that you've got the ability. And we did. We were trained at learning languages, and we certainly weren't going to be put off by a little French, but that's a luxury of our position. If we had been laboring all day in an English language world, like most of the United States is, we would not have had the opportunity to pick up the French at the same rate, and it would have cost us. So, elitism, plain and simple. There it is. But... As a gesture against elitism, mon français est terrible. So really, I'm one of the good ones. <laughs> okay. Remember, bad French is academic praxis. What else is academic praxis is the dark tongue. We saw the dark tongue when they went up into the tower and there was some sort of monstrosity that carried them up because the stairs stopped, because of course it did. We see it again. Uh, an imp appears, a devil, that... Chatters in the dark tongue. Cool. We know a little more. And Pat's not super happy about this little devil being here and also a little unsure about what it is and tries to get some information from Warlock. And remember last chapter when I said I'd go back to Warlock's interesting relationship with teaching? Yes. We see it here. I know Warlock doesn't really feel like Catherine is necessarily a worthy student, even though, you know what, she actually is one of the most worthy students around right now because she's still possessed of learn. But he has, he has taught. Apprentice is, unless I terribly mistake myself, his apprentice. And he's also been, from everything we've seen, despite 
the fundamental trauma at the heart of Masego's life being his fault. He's been an effective, loving, and active father, which means a whole lot and must involve teaching. I mean, you have to teach a kid how to use silverware at the table and then spend years admonishing them to continue to use it because that's a skill they have to develop every day. Teaching doesn't stop. And yet here, when Catherine's confused, he says, Devils begin as a personification of a concept, the calamity explained with a sigh. The older they get, the more they can think independently of that nature. There are differences according to breeds, of course, with more abstract concepts resulting in a greater intelligence. And Catherine has an inquiring mind. She says, and what does that thing personify? And Warlock replies absently, hunger for fresh blood, and keeps working. And I'm just, I have been involved in some well-regarded research universities in my time. And I'm aware that there are absolutely great minds in a field who don't care to teach. And it's a tragedy of our system that in universities, at least in the United States, teaching is often a chore laid at the feet of researchers. And the students then suffer that, or at the very least, the underpaid, underappreciated TAs who have to compensate. Which, by the way, any listeners in the United States who have not yet attended university or college or what have you and intend to, please look into your local community colleges. They give you a better education than most universities because the people working there are teachers first and foremost, not researchers made to teach. Though plenty of universities and plenty of researchers made to teach are fantastic and do well, and universities enjoy many resources and opportunities that may be the right fit for you instead of a community college. But please look at your community colleges. They're not worse schools for lower achievers or something, and you'll save money. They're the best. That all said, I don't get it. I, When I like things, I want to share them. I left my doctoral program in order to continue teaching because I didn't want to I, maybe that's the thing. I didn't want to invent knowledge. I wanted to share it. But it's because I like the stuff I know so much. I read this book I really like. And now I have a podcast that people actually listen to. Thank you. And I, Warlock makes such strides, discovers so many things, and doesn't care to share it. That just feels like such a difficult way to love a thing to me. Now, I... I think there's a couple things here. One, Warlock doesn't really like Cat much. so Nor it, should he. So part of it could very well just be, I don't want to teach Catherine Foundling this stuff, which is reasonable. If there was somebody that irritated me and they wanted to talk about something I was passionate about, it would be less, in, less interesting for me than to talk to somebody who I love spending time with. There's also uh, several paragraphs ago a a minute of this conversation ago warlock was expressing that he was tired of this whole affair he's done with this interrogation he doesn't want to be here so it may be less about the teaching and more that every time he has to explain something to catherine this process takes that much longer to get done with that all said yeah come on man just tell her about devils what's your deal and uh we also learn a little bit about devils just sort of uh as a byproduct of his explanation here, and that's that they have weirdly specific concepts to embody. Um, this imp that he brings into existence, or brings into creation, rather, um, it's not personifying 
blood or fresh blood or anything like it is personifying hunger for fresh blood it is personifying a specific desire for a specific type of blood <laughs> it's uh <laughs> it's it is weirdly specific it's very niche uh and it kind of makes me curious about how many varieties of devil there are if at some level they can be this narrow of a field i mean are there millions of types of devils because they have to encompass so many different uh weirdly specific phenomena i I don't know but it's it's a funny one i personally want to discover the devil that personifies the desire to stop a journey to explore a verdant gully and discover cool frogs because honestly that's one of the parts of myself that is most unfulfilled and i think that's universal right yeah, so you want to have like a devil to lay that disappointment at, at at whose feet to lay that disappointment? No, I want to sign a pact with the devil to do the things it likes, and then we'll uh, go off and explore verdant gullies and discover cool frogs. Fair enough. Frogs are cool. Some of them are really bumpy, and some of them are really smooth. And then when you add in toads, you get the real bumps. Mm-hmm. For sure. I got, to see poisons. A, I got to see a pretty cool toad pretty recently. And you know what? It made my night better pretty measurably. I once bought a set of stamps that featured frogs, and until I ran out of them, every piece of mail I sent was a joy. And you know what? Every piece of mail I send is still a joy, because I have a lot of stamps. I don't collect them, but I get all the cool ones, and so I have a lot. So, Warlock squashes the imp, magically, and has a blood of, if I may quote, reddish mulch. Yeah, mulch blood. Floating and hovering. It smells like rotten blood, which is a smell Catherine Foundling is unfortunately already acquainted with. And we are told, letters in the old tongue started appearing on the stone, forming a family tree circling around the remains of the imp. Okay, cool. I'm curious what she means by letters in the old tongue. It's not a nonsensical phrase, but... When she says letters in the old tongue, does the old tongue have its own alphabet or abjad, syllabary, what have you? Does it use a similar or even the same alphabet? But instead, she's just like, oh, I see these words and I know what they are. Just like how I saw in a set of credits for, I believe, Bluey, the names of the actors on one page included, or perhaps the role, I don't speak any of the language, but it had two, what I would consider to be a umlaut in a row. And if you see the letter A with what I call an umlaut over it twice, that's got to be Finnish, right? That's the language that does it. So did she just see two A's with umlauts above them and say, ah, yes, the old tongue, which in the guide verse, we all know to be Finnish. I, oh. I'm just curious. Yeah, I mean, I think this is one of those places where we take note of this and look forward to more of the old tongue appearing to uh, get a little bit, a few more clues here and there. And then I'm curious, this is making a family tree. Great. Lineage, particularly biological lineage, which this might not necessarily be following, is adoption valid to the magic? Are, are marriages the thing or only the production of children? I don't know. But it makes a family tree. What names does it use? Are is Duchess Keegan metaphysically, or at least fundamentally to this magic, actually Duchess Keegan? Are there true names of some kind? 
but not secret all powerful true names because this clearly isn't some sort of I'm gaining power over everyone in Deina. I don't know. But there are questions raised that don't have to be answered, but we can revel in them. Following this bit of blood magic, um, some logistics are discussed. There is a fun sentence start. Yeah, honestly. Um, some logistics are discussed. Uh, Bregach is going to remain in the Calamity's custody uh, until he can figure out what to do with her. And after determining that, Warlock asks Kat if she's got the hunter in custody. And Kat, yeah, I've got him in custody as much as you can. He's a hero. And then just sort of like nonchalantly asks such a question. I don't suppose you've got a way to bind his name? No biggie. It, you know, if you've got lying around a way to uh, imprison the core of power that makes a named a named and just keep him bound up. You know, this thing that's just built on carving grooves into creation itself. If you could just like tie that up neatly for me, that'd be great. It's so, it's such a casual question for such a big thing, but Warlock doesn't treat it like that. He shrugs and kind of, and explains a little bit, eh, it's possible to do so. You just have to be in the right place, which is very interesting. You need a proper ritual site. And this doesn't mean a prepared one, a you know, a laboratory with all the right tools and the right sigils carved into the walls, but rather it's a specific location because he gives an example that there's one in Lies. What makes a ritual site proper for a name? Is it like, I don't know, ley lines? I, I would have assumed, had you mentioned ritual sites with no context for this sort of thing, I would have assumed that there were specific spots for specific names, like as a really easy example, names that are bound to a specific thing, like the mirror knight in his lake or pond, uh, there could be a ritual site associated with that body of water that could bind his name. Uh, just or if you know the ruling power, the uh, the ruling power of a, a state, whether that's the dread empress or what have you, could be bound in a specific place in Prace, the the antithesis to the tower, whatever that means. But apparently, there's just broad magical sites that you can use to bind or usurp somebody's name bind or and that is also important usurp somebody's name what's going on here what does this mean this is very interesting and i don't know that we ever really uh discuss it again i don't know that it comes up or that it's ever actually done that i can think of in the way that warlock's talking about here it's just a a detail that's dropped and is very interesting and also that it's so rare Callow has one site. And sure, we know that Lisa's is special. There's the whole angel issue. But mm -hmm. that's how special it needs to be. Fascinating. I wish he were more inclined to teach about it. But while we might not know what he is but while we might know what he is not inclined to do, we know what Catherine is inclined to do. They stroll out of the room and go to a small chamber. Someone had helpfully placed a pitcher of wine on the reading table by the window, and I wasted no time in grabbing a cup and pouring me something to drink. And I gotta say, she has been bold so far. Stop, she said. But I don't care how well you know somebody. If you're in their house, you politely sit around and wait until you're offered a beverage, and then you decline it two or three times before you accept. This is standard hospitality where I come from. You can't just pour yourself a drink in someone's house. Unless, you know, someone puts a pitcher on the table and blah, blah. But, you know, here, what? No. 
There is a Catherine. This is a pitcher on a table. What are you talking about? At a meal time. Ah, that's not a meal time. You walked over. And I mean, it would be one thing if she walked over and offered Warlock a drink, for instance, like a hey, I'll pour us drinks. It's a little. It's you know, a bit presumptive sure but at least it's there's a politeness built in this is just all right i'm taking your wine and this is especially egregious given what cat thinks a, a moment later um she has a weird moment where she says i wasn't sure exactly where i stood to warlock when it came to pecking order but lower seemed like a safe assumption hey cat yeah like just what do you mean assumption what do you mean you're not sure warlock is on the dark council is that the one we ended up with he's yep he's one of the calamities he's a full named in price he's black's best friend um you are beneath him in every way that matters within price it's not just a safe assumption i'm pretty sure it's legal <laughs> I mean, graduated uh, at the top of my class from wizard school I wasn't sure where I stood in regards to rank with Merlin, but he might have had yeah. an edge on me. Right. It's, it's, I mean, she is correct, at least, that she is lower. But the fact that she's not sure is uh, a little rough. So they have a conversation, and there was a minor misunderstanding. No big. Apprentice has been dropping hints that he might join Catherine, given the chance. And Catherine neglected to invite him because... What Apprentice did is supposed to indicate he would accept an invitation if it was extended. Then it's her job to extend it. That's the etiquette. She didn't know this. That's fine. It's a shame. You gotta learn these things. Oh, sure. And she rubs the bridge of her nose, thinking, was it this complicated being a hero? And knowing that the Mirror Knight did well being a hero leads me to know that nothing is complicated for heroes. Yeah. Ever. Usually less literally than with the Mirror Knight, but you can just run into your problems head first and solve them. Yeah. So Catherine drinks half of her cup of wine that she greedily poured for herself. Says she'll explain the misunderstanding and take on the apprentice. Great. And then she says, if you excuse me, I've got a general staff meeting. I've got a general staff meeting and half a bell and more paperwork on the backlog than I want to think about. And Warlock mildly says, the line that so most clearly demonstrates the gulf in hierarchy between them. And it's simply, I do not excuse you. Yep. It I know we saw him do a bloodline ritual, summon an imp, ready to vivisect his soul, but this is the clearest demonstration of power. This is, yeah. It's not, actually, could you hang out a moment with the implication that you need to be there that she could possibly miss? He's so far above, he doesn't even need the, polite the politeness. It's just, no, you cannot leave. Uh, it's not rudeness either. No, it's, it's just a statement of fact. fact. Yeah. It, the fact is, she has not been excused. She thinks it's about, oh, take care of your son. And he replies, again, with a blunt statement of fact. Yeah. Uh, a weird one, though. He says, you're a clever girl. I'm you're perfectly aware of what the consequences of allowing my son to die on your watch would be. Uh, first of all, trust your son, you coward. Like, why are you acting like Z is not perfectly capable? If something happens to him, it was well beyond Kat's ability to stop it in the first place. Um, but she should have died trying. Fair. Okay. I, also you know, would have. Yeah, that's also fair. 
Uh, yeah, but it turns out that wasn't what this was about at all. Warlock is uh, interested in discussing a secret meeting between Kat and Ime and Militia back when Kat was first in Otter. Um, the This meeting, of course, as longtime listeners may recall, was mostly getting a feel for each other uh, between Militia and Kat, but there was a good bit of talking about legacy and some hints about Kat stepping into Black's shoes, and there was a lot going on, a lot of um, subtext, some of which Kat caught, some of which she sort of missed. But the important bit is Warlock knows about this, very possibly because the Dark Council situation that he just gets to know. But the interesting thing here is how he analyzes the analysis of his the other very important people here, how Black thinks of the world or as um, of Trace as a great machine, and he's simply a cog, important but replaceable. And Elia thinks of it more as a weave where she is weaving. She's important because she has to work with what she's given, but she doesn't get to choose what those materials are. And his, I don't know, the the danger he sees there is that she's willing to replace any individual thread. She's not a thread, but everyone else is, which is concerning for the warlock because the only person he really cares about in that thread is black and you know the other calamities. But warlock is saying they're wrong, not their interpretations are off a bit or my paradigm is different, but rather they are wrong. Price isn't a machine or a tapestry. It's a living, breathing organism. And, you know, to go on to say, you can rip a creature's how you can't rip a creature's heart out and put another one in. The individual parts are intrinsically part of this being and you can't just replace them easily. And this is, this whole bit is a really cool piece of analysis where he summarizes the complicated nuanced paradigms through which these three different people are interacting with this empire in a way that's pretty clear and easy to grasp and you can always see when these particular characters are on screen and talking about empire and talking about their plans how these worldviews affect what they are saying and what they're doing and so this this really concise study on these characters is very cool to see in universe and to see warlock handle it so well and disagree fully and still be willing to work entirely with those other two people and pretty much be on the same page with them most of the time it's just a very cool scene well the pretty much on the same page with them issue here is yeah they've got the same purposes more or less when things are going well it's just how their systems buckle under extremity that disagrees or rather how his buckles under extremity disagrees because both black and militia by his reckoning would be willing to work without black and that yeah that that really is where the rub lies i love his fierce loyalty he's such a good friend good husband good friend good father bad guy favorite also he's hot (laughs) uh pat is a little shaken by this. She's not 100% sure why this is coming out. And, you know, why are we fighting? We're on the same side. And he laughs. He mocks her and says, you think the Empire is a single side? How delightfully naive of you. Which, first of all, rude. And second of all, he follows that up with, we're not Callowans, child. Oh! And 
to that, I only have to say, how delightfully naive. As though Callow is all a single side, because the fact that he has this incredible analysis of all these different things and has an understanding of this nuance, despite not you know, acting on it a lot of times because he knows what he's about and he's more about black than on about the empire. He still has Callow as this monolithic enemy in his mind uh, and misses out on a lot of the detail because he doesn't care to look into it. And so it's very funny to be like, ah, you think we're all, ah, please. Unlike Callow, who is a single unified entity where everybody gets along and agrees perfectly. <laughs> That's the Callow I know. Yep. But Catherine reads this weirdly as, well, just to quote her, yet another Precy telling me I can't be part of their little private club. There's a shocker. And Warlock, who is just awesome in this regard, says, your birth has nothing to do with this. Neither scribe nor ranger are from Preys. Black barely is by most of my people's standards. And you know what? We could see this coming a mile away. This is the man who called an orc child. He's not going to be weird about birth. He's just a good guy, is what we're saying. Everything about him is good, and he doesn't do anything wrong ever. This man, as we've seen, can do blood magic without even slaughtering someone. An imp, but if we make killing devils a sin, then who among us, you know? Fair, yeah. This conversation sort of wraps up, um, and Warlock directly states the kind of thing that he's been sort of dancing around up till here he says i don't care one whit for the empire or evil or all of those carefully laid plans everybody else seems to be following what he cares about is black is amadeus specifically like it's not the role black he's not attached to the name because his name is warlock and those are uh, an allied allied pair he loves amadeus it's his oldest and dearest friend a brother in all but blood and I actually, I was thinking about this, I really like this trope, this, I don't care about the polity, I don't care about the organization, I'm here because I'm loyal to somebody who does care about it. So I fight alongside them, I help them help the Empire, but not for the Empire's sake, I'm doing it for my friend. And I, I really enjoy this trope, but it is very cool to see, interesting to see, that the Calamities, but especially Warlock and Captain and scribe and ranger okay so all of the calamities the calamities fall so perfectly into this trope this is not a place where they subvert tropes or where they are utilizing tropes to their advantage and are aware of the story like they are just the trope of this party of incredibly powerful people who are bound together by frankly one individual and his goals and they do what he wants and are helping his organization because of him and that's the that's the glue and the calamities are just that. Like they they fit that trope to a T. There there isn't a deviation from that really. And that's just the state of things. We don't see that often with the calamities. They are so outside of that because of who their leader is. But in this this instance, they are like stereotypically that trope. Much like Grantaire and Les Misérables. Or if you prefer a much higher brow reference, you're saying that Warlock and all the Calamities have something in common with Austrian superstar Falco in their love for Amadeus. I am saying exactly that. Thank you. But the fact that Amadeus is Amadeus means he's aware of this and the trope of it. Oh, absolutely. He willingly and openly uses it. But 
because he's not the machine he works to be, it's not like he's devoid of love or something or consumed by a psychopathy that requires he turn all his friends into tools. The friendship is a tool, but it's a tool because of the depth of the friendship rather than the friendship, you know? It can, I mean, it can be two things. He's, he is both at once the brutal tactician and the guy who really likes uh, his group of friends around him. I think the one exception to he doesn't treat them as tools, though, might be Scribe. Like, the, she is very much just, like, the person who gets things done. And I don't know. It may be off screen that this happens, but we don't see the personal relationship there as much as with Captain or with Warlock, for instance, or even with Ranger. Well, you know, she's just an employee. <laughs> I mean, kind of. <laughs> it's it's rough that is absolutely not the case from her end. I'm not I'm not trying to downplay her her attachment to the group, but rather how she is functioning, I guess. She's I mean, by nature, her role has her as a background character, and sometimes it seems that way in the way we see their, you know, personal relationships, which is a little rough, but eh, that's scribe for you, I guess. But speaking of the power of friendship, Mm -hmm. in an absolutely Care Bear, My Little Pony level dedication to the worth of friendship above all else, Warlock leans forward as he tells Catherine that even if she kills Black, he will not kill her. What he explains is, what I will do is rip your soul out of that mangled husk you call a body, then cast it into the void so you can continue screaming in an unspeakable agony until creation itself falls apart. And he steps back, smooths his robes, and smiles pleasantly. And I just really appreciate a friendship that strong. It is heartwarming. Absolutely. However, this threat, I can't even call it a threat, this promise, this guarantee, is... It does one thing for Catherine. It, you know, it, it warns her about exactly what this relationship is. And so this chapter ends with Kat wanting to do some research, wanting, well, let's be honest here, wanting Hawkram to do some research for her, hoping to find out, find a book uh, that will give her information. She says, there's bound to be something out there about the best way to kill a mage. She knows where... Mm. Yeah, she knows what what she's what the stakes are now that she might have to kill Warlock. Probably will have to kill Warlock. She thinks, um, and that's great and interesting. And there's like there's some layers there, but can we just drill in on kill a mage? Cat, you're not trying to kill a mage. <laughs> this is the Warlock. You don't when you're when you're looking forward when you're you're attempting a what's a better word when you're scheduled for a fight with bruce lee you don't look up how to fight a man who has arms like there's such a gulf here <laughs> like this is not how this works you don't just see how do i how do i fight somebody who for a few minutes can throw some fireballs and then gets tired you're talking about the warlock the sovereign of the red skies there's not going to be a chapter in a book about fighting a calamity <laughs> that was a great metaphor <laughs> the Bruce Lee one? It was. Thank you. I appreciate that. Can you give me one more metaphor? Just like Cat, if just just like Cat, if she kills Black and Warlock is somehow still alive, we are running out of time. Ooh. Join us next week on Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Rat as we discuss Stairways. Sisters. 
and thins. Wade in their blood. Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is a fan-made podcast discussing Erratic Errata as a practical guide to evil. Check out the full serial at practicalguidetoevil.wordpress.com. Intro music for this episode was Cradle of Your Soul by Lemon Music Studio. Music for the epigraph was My Little Garden of Eden by Jeff Harvey. Clint Cheer was Yay by Pixabay. Outro music, which even now is elevating my voice to the realms of the divine... It's the price of freedom by Daddy S. Music. The music is provided by the generous license of pixabay.com slash music slash. Go and support all the artists who make this work possible by providing their stories and sounds free of charge. If you'd like to support this podcast, follow us on Twitter at The Long Price. Do you have questions, comments, contributions? Are you overwhelmed by the urge to correct our errors? Email us at thelongprice at gmail.com. If you'd like to materially support our work, find our Patreon at patreon.com slash pgtee. Join the ranks of our patrons and be called by name, receive personalized stories and art, and access at least one patron-exclusive tangent. We implore you, don't consider joining unless you're already supporting the artists who make this all possible. Special thanks to our patron and villainous hero, Gray, our patron and liege, always the claimant, never the named, our patron and guardian, the Fey Knight, our patron and mentor, the traveling teacher, our patron and dear friend, Aaron, as well as the hordes of cattle below. Next week, a heroic interlude. Hey, this time let's put the alternate one at the end of the podcast instead of on Patreon, just so they can get a taste. Good idea. Do you want to lead us in? Join us next week on Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata as we discuss... Meetings. Martyrs. And meat. Oh, is that a culinary episode? I hope so. <laughs> Just like William, wait in their blood. Ooh. Her blood?